Welcome to Dealmaker Diaries, where you hear directly from the dealmakers who you invest with. M&A, real estate syndication, and more. Strap in for unparalleled advice, wisdom, and insight from some of the world's best business minds with Don Thomas and G1C Group. Hey guys, welcome. Today we have a great show for you guys. We have Mr. Mark Owings joining us. So from the young age of 12 years old, Mark was an active addict, in and out of jail, rehabs, and spent periods of his life living on the street. It wasn't until he was caught in an armed robbery at 24 years old, putting him in jail for four years, that his life turned around, thanks to the discovery of a life-changing book he read during his time served. Mark has an amazing story of breakthrough that he wants to share with the world to encourage those who are struggling that it gets better how anyone can start at rock bottom and become successful. You can if you think you can. Today at 55, Mark is a multimillionaire thriving in the real estate investing industry with over 100 rental units and coaches, new investors to acquire and build their portfolios as well. Mark spends his free time at investor meetups and classes, Facebook Live and podcasting, sharing all that he can possibly think of without holding anything back. So let's give a warm welcome to Mr. Mark Owens. Let's go. All right, Mark, thanks for joining me this morning. It was so good to have you on the show. Welcome. Hey, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. How are you today? Everything going well so far? I'm breathing, so it's a good day. <laughs> I'm easy. All right, excellent, excellent. What what part of the country are you hailing from, Mark? I'm in the area around Baltimore, Maryland, on the East Coast. Okay, Baltimore. All right, so guys, um, I'm not sure if you've heard Mark's story, but he has a very interesting one and definitely inspirational. So, Mark, why don't you why don't you tell us about um, a little bit about yourself, where you come from, where you grew up, and how you came to be where you are now. Sure. Um, and that, that's a long story. I'll try to give you the, I'll give you the abbreviated version and then we can uh, go into more detail in the areas that you're interested in. All right. So born in 1965 in a blue collar, lower middle class uh, neighborhood in Baltimore city. Uh, didn't know my father, he wasn't around. My mother and him were married, but you know, they split up when I was like six months old. Mother got married again when I was like two, got divorced again when I was like six. Uh, found her next husband a couple of years later and they ended up getting married, I guess when I was around 10 or 11. And he was my second stepfather. He's, they're still married. Uh, they have a great marriage. Uh, the, when up until around the age of 12, I was like, you know, I was just a good kid. You know, I went around collecting money for different charities and I had newspaper routes and I used to cut grass for people for a few bucks and shovel snow when it snowed and washed cars. And I was just kind of like an entrepreneur, even at a very young age. And nobody else in my family was like that. Uh, but it was just, to me, it seemed like a, like a natural fit for the way that I thought about things. So I was really, you know, I was good up until around the age of 12 where I smoked pot for the first time and, and I started smoking cigarettes. And uh, that what that did was it made me fit in. It, it helped me to fit in with a, in a neighborhood where I never really felt comfortable. Even though I grew up there, I never really felt like I was part of the neighborhood for many different reasons. And, and smoking weed, like it took me into a whole different lifestyle where it didn't depend on how good I was at sports or how good I was at school or, you know, how I fit in socially. Like once everybody's sitting around smoking weed, like nobody cares about any of that stuff. And that, you know, progressed like it does for some people to drinking, to, you know, all the other drugs that I could get my hands on, you know, speed, quaaludes, valiums, uh, mushrooms, acid, inhalants. And by the time I was in the you know, I got kicked out of school. And, well, I, I, got, I failed the 10th grade, eventually got kicked out in the 12th grade. And that's when I, you know, I started, I guess it was a few months before I turned 18, I started shooting coke and heroin. And for the next seven or eight years, you know, my life was out of control. I mean, it was between being living in the streets, 
getting locked up like literally dozens of times in and out of rehabs, uh, kicked out of half of them. And that whole thing ended in the summer of 1989, where I robbed the bank and literally a couple of dozen stores in the Baltimore area and stole a bunch of cars. And I was kind of all in, like I knew I was, you know, going to go to jail for a long time if I got caught. So I just thought, man, I'm just going to do this until I either OD or get shot. And I ended up getting locked up right after I robbed the store, went and bought some Coke, some dope, and was on my way back to the motel room when I ran a light in a stolen car. And of course, you know, that it was a cop right behind me when I did it. And I ended up getting boxed in a few blocks away and, you know, jumped out, took off running, got caught, wound up uh, in the Baltimore County Detention Center. And I had robberies in Baltimore City, Baltimore County, Hartford County, Carroll County, the federal thing. I had another state robbery in Pennsylvania, violation of probation, stolen cars, like, you know, a whole lot of shit going on. And uh, the, but I wasn't done. Like I wasn't ready to stop. And I attempted to escape out of Baltimore County Detention Center, the escape proof jail. And I was literally two minutes from getting out. Uh, I managed to get my hands on a piece of steel that was about four feet long. It was a part of a bunk bed. And I was prying the plexiglass window out when I got caught. Went on lockup for six months, uh, which is where you're locked in a room by yourself for 23 hours a day. Yeah. And there was a point in there where my attorney came to see me. And he was in and, and this time, like I would have done anything to get out. It's just like I didn't care. I was all in. And the attorney looks at me and he says, man, what the fuck is wrong with you? Like, can't you even stay out of trouble in jail? You're already locked up. And then, you know, I'm just sitting there like, and I still remember like looking at him, like, you know, the deer in headlights, like, I can't believe my attorney's talking to me like this. He's actually talking to me like a friend or a father, like asking me like really good questions. Hmm. And then he said, don't you realize that if you play your cards right, you can actually be home by the time you're 30 years old, you could be young enough to start a whole new life. And when he said that, that I, don't, I can't really explain it, but I still get the feeling when I repeat those words he said, where I guess it gave me hope for the first time that I had had in years. Like I could be young enough to start a whole new life. I had never really thought about that because up until that point, it would just been like one losing thing after another. It was just like just failure, failure, get locked up, get kicked out of rehab, living in the streets. Uh, robbing either a drug dealer or, you know, like a store. And yeah. so I, the thought of having like a normal life had never really occurred to me until he said that. And then I thought to myself, all right, well, I got to figure this shit out. If I can be home in five years, you know, like the fastest, but if I can actually get home in five years, I've got to figure out a way so that when I get home, I'm successful. And, and then I don't, come back to this crap. And at the time, you know, I'd thought that I, you know, that's just who I was and I didn't have any choice. And I started looking on the inside and part of, for me, like I tried AA and a churches, different girlfriends living in different States. I tried like everything I could think of. And the issue is that I would always been looking outside of myself for the solution to my problem. And when I was sitting on lockup, I had a lot of free time and I started to look on the inside for the solution, which was kind of a reverse for me. And I, you know, I'm just thinking about it and thinking about it and thinking about it. I'm not really coming up with any answers, but I started to formulate some ideas in my head that later on came to fruition. And it happened when I got off of lockup. I was on the tier and there was a book in the common area laying on the table and I went and picked it up. Got plenty of time to read, right? Every Louis L'Amour Western, I think, Stephen King book that was ever written in jail. And uh, the book was called You Can If You Think You Can. And it was, the author's name was Norman Vincent Peale, who at the time I'd never heard of. And he's more well-known for a book called The Power of Positive Thinking, which was like a big bestseller, but I didn't know any of that. I was a druggie, man. I don't know anything about that kind of crap. So this was literally the first self-help book that I had ever held in my hands. And I looked, you know, and I read the back of it and I thought, all right, I'll read this. I got plenty of time. Looks like it's positive. Sat in my cell, started reading the book, halfway through it, something went off. Some kind of switch in me went off where I knew like, 
I'm done, man. I'm going to change my life. And there's not a damn thing anybody can do about it. And I quit smoking cigarettes like five minutes after I made that decision. I quit. Back then, you could smoke in jail. I quit smoking cigarettes five minutes after I made that decision. Gave the half pack I had opened to a friend. Kept the rest I had myself because it's money in jail. And uh, and that was it, man. I, I just decided at that time that I've got to do the time. And the truth is, like, I deserved it. I knew that. I was the one that was fucked up. I was the one that was like the bad guy and I deserved every day of it. And I thought, but just because I have to do the time does not mean I have to waste it. I can get a lot out of time if I put my mind to it and I take advantage of the opportunities that are there, which is something, you know, most of the guys in jail, I mean, it's my second time in prison. You know, most of the time, the first time you're in there and you're like, man, I'm not going to do that shit again. I'll figure out a smarter way to do the wrong thing and I'll just get away with it next time. But that kind of thinking just brings you back to jail. And for most of the, you know, the drug life, when people are trying to get clean, it's usually just trying to get clean to get out of whatever jam they're in. And then they can go back to their previous life. And this time I knew things were different. I just felt different on the inside. And it was, it was the book that did it. And what it did was it made me believe in myself for the first time, uh, maybe since I was like 10 years old, like I actually believed in myself and my ability to live an extraordinary life. And the, when I fast forward through this, cause there's, I mean, there's a lot more to it, but when I fast forward through it, I ended up uh, a few months before I got out of jail, I, I actually wrote a letter to a girlfriend that I had in high school that I had loved back then. And I, I broke up with her because she was, I, I guess what I would call normal. She went to college and, you know, all that stuff. And I knew I was going to go to prison. So I ended up breaking up with her. So I wrote her before I got out of jail and she wrote me back and told me how nice her life was and then told me not to write her anymore. So I thought, okay, well, I'm going to write her another letter and I'm going to tell her everything that I've always wanted to tell her, but never had the balls to tell her. And that's why I really broke up with her and that, you know, I just knew I was a bomb and she wasn't. And I just, I didn't want to drag her down with me. And, and the truth is she was slowing me down from hitting the bottom anyway. And I wrote her the letter. And then a couple of weeks later, I got a letter from her back saying, well, second thought we can, you know, we can write. Well, we ended up getting married two years after I got out of jail. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, it's like, you know, I want to just fast forward to where I'm at now. So I, you know, I got out of jail. I was, I started, I was making six bucks an hour working in a factory. I went back to school, majored in biochemistry. It's funny hearing a, a junkie say that, but I went back to school, majored in biochemistry. Uh, after a couple of years of school, I realized that there really aren't that many jobs in the sciences unless you get a PhD and I wasn't going that far. So ended up switching to IT and uh, ended up, you know, I got my first job in IT. I think I was making 15 bucks an hour. It was around 1998, maybe. And a few years later, I was making $100 an hour teaching computer certification classes in colleges all over Maryland, which was kind of funny because I had a GED. You know, I never finished high school. I got a two-year degree. I got that in prison. And now I'm teaching in colleges all over Maryland, making $100 an hour. And uh, I saved my money. Uh, you know, it's the, how do I put this? Drug addicts are very uh, cheap with their money. We don't want to spend money on anything because it takes money away from our, you know, our drugs. So we're, you know, we're going to look for the cheapest stuff. We're going to wear our shoes. So they fall off our feet. We're going to wear our shirts. So they fall off our back because we don't want to spend our drug money on, you know, things that we didn't feel were necessary, like nice shoes and clothes. And so years later, I still had that philosophy, like, man, I don't want to spend my money. And I just, I saved it and I saved it and I saved it. And then I invested some in the stock market and really wasn't happy with that and took it back out. And I started buying rental properties. I bought my first one in 2002. It's about 19 years ago. And a few years after I bought my first one, I owned enough rental properties where I could get out of the IT stuff. And I just stayed in the computer, or not the computer business, the real estate business up until that's where I'm at today. I own a bunch of rentals. I, I work very little. I've got a lot of good friends, people that respect me, that know about all my bullshit from my past, but I've done so much good since then that, you know, people that know me don't really care what I did 30 years ago. So that's, that's like the short version of the story. So you let me know where you'd like to delve into and I'm all ready. 
Okay, thank you. Yeah, and a lot there. So, Adequa, so I mean, it looks like you started your descent, I would say, around 12. So from 12 to 24, while you're, while you're doing all this, where were your mother and stepfather trying to intervene and help you? Or at what point did, or did, they, did it come to a point where they just, they just gave up and gave up yeah, on they, you? They did everything they could. The, part of the issue was like back in, this is like all 80s. Like I think I started smoking weed in 78 and I got locked up in the last time in 79. And I don't think that there wasn't as uh, clear of an understanding of addiction in the 80s as there is today. Uh, so back then it was like, okay, we're going to take you to see a psychologist. Well, talking to a psychologist about, you know, what at the time what I thought was bullshit isn't going to like make me not want to get high. And I thought at the time I just, I do drugs because I like it. You know, it wasn't, that's all I understood was it just, I felt good when I did them. I felt like I was a part of something. It was exciting. Uh, and seeing, you know, so I, so my parents, like they did the best that they could with the tools that they had available at the time. You know, they, they put me, I got in a car accident and they put me in, they asked me if I would go into a psych hospital for juveniles uh, to get some help with my like addiction stuff, my behavioral issues. And we went and toured the facility. And then I asked them, I said, listen, I'll go in, but if I want to come out, you have to get me back out. And they agreed I went in, it was, I think it was like August of 81 and uh, December of 81, I decided like, man, this shit, I want to get out of here. Like this ain't working. This is bullshit. And I told my parents that I was like, look, I want to get out. And they said, well, we don't want to let you out right now. We don't think you're ready. And I'm like, well, that's not part of the agreement. You said you're going to let me out. And they said, well, we're not. A few days later, I tried to escape from that place. Ended up going on lockup and the parents come to see me. And I said, listen, I'm getting out one way or another. I am getting out of this place. You told me that you would let me out and now you're not. So I'm just letting you know, like I'm coming up out of this. And a week later, they let me out. Uh, so my whole point of that is that they tried everything that they could, you know, psychologists, hospitals, mm -hmm. like everything, you know, there's, I don't think anybody had ever even heard of AA or NA. I mean, later on I did, you know, when I really started screwing up, but, you know, eventually I got kicked out of the house when I was 17, got kicked out of school, got kicked out of the house the same day. And, you know, I ended up moving in with my grandmother. And part of the issue is with drug addicts is we are, we learn this skill of manipulating people. Mm, yes. Yeah. And I was, I'm kind of smart and, uh, I was really good at that. And the, so I was able to manipulate my grandmother and that enabled me to continue this lifestyle for several years uh, because I was able to manipulate her. I was able to blame my parents for my problems and it, which was terrible. I mean, now when I look back, it was, I feel horrible about it, but at the time, you know, when you're a drug addict, all that you care about is getting high. You're not thinking yeah. about, you know, the damage that you're causing to your family and other people's. And uh, so I, just, I want to back up for a second. I want to, I want to mention something that could help some people. So when, after I read this book and I was in jail, I was at the time I was thinking like, you know, when I think about me and who I am, all that I think about is getting kicked out of this, quitting this, getting locked up for this. Like it was just all negative stuff. And what I decided to do, I, I thought about it and I was like, well, who the, you know, because when you're in that mode and you're trying to get clean, like you don't even know who the hell you are anymore. Like you're thinking like, man, I'm just a bad person. I'm rotten. I do all this terrible stuff. I fail at everything. It's hard to become a winner when you think you're a loser. It's, it's like, it's impossible. And, and so I, I started thinking backwards and I thought, well, who the hell were you when you were 11? Before you started fucking up, who were you? And I started writing all this stuff down at 11 years old. I was a good kid, you know, from when I was born till 11, I was good. I was a good person, compassionate and I was kind. And, you know, I, I just never wished anything bad on anybody. And then I said, okay, Mark, that is who you are. Now, instead of focusing on all the dumb shit you did, let's focus on that 11 year old kid. And now we're going to sit down and we're going to write down, all the good things that you can think of 
that you've done in your life. Now, it wasn't a big list. If I wrote out the bad list, it would have been a lot bigger. But I just, I, you know, I wrote down whatever it was. It was like, you know, I had a newspaper route. I collected money for, you know, for Jerry Lewis's telethon and didn't even take a nickel out for candy. I, you know, I turned in every penny of it. And just all these, you know, things that I did that I thought showed that I'm a good person. And what I decided to do is I'm going to focus on this person. That is who I am. It doesn't mean I'm not responsible for the bad things that I did, but what it does is it changes the way I feel about myself. And I wanted to start thinking, I'm not the loser that I was. I am a winner. And my past before I started doing drugs shows that I'm a winner. And I wanted to start focusing on the positive aspects of who I was instead of the negative aspects. And you can think about this with sports. You know, if you got two guys getting in a boxing ring, and one guy's thinking, man, this guy, he's going to, you know, he's going to kick my ass. I'm not even going to last the first round. He already lost a fight. The first punch hasn't even been swung yet. And he's already lost just because of his mindset. Yes. You have to go in there thinking, I don't care. You can put me in a ring with Mike Tyson and I'm going to think I'm going to kick this MFers ass up and down this damn street. You have to think like that. I'm probably still going to get my ass kicked in like four seconds. But you have to go in there thinking, I'm going to tear this guy's head off. Because if you think the opposite, you are done. And I use the same philosophy with myself. I have to look at myself. I am a good person. I am a decent person. I'm kind. I'm compassionate. I'm willing to go the extra mile to help somebody. That's who I am. And I just had to focus on that and ignore all the other bullshit. And I told myself, that is not who I am. That is a good person under the influence of some fucked up drugs that turns you into that beast. But that's not who you really are. And and that is what I give credit to for the ability to you know make the change and become. I mean, the truth is like the person that's way beyond what I ever dreamed of being. You know, my life today is is wonderful, and I'm respected by so many people in the community and. Uh, and liked, and it's just like, I could have never even imagined having this kind of life. And it all started with really just changing the focus on myself and, and believing in myself. And once I was able to do that, I was ever, I was able to overcome everything. Yeah. It sounded like that, that first book you can, if you think you can, was a turning point. Um, it was, it was huge. So how, how, after you read that first book, how much longer were you in, in prison? Uh, probably about four years. And were you, did, did that um, entice you to read a lot more self-help books? Well, there wasn't a whole lot of options in Hagerstown in the prison I was in. But I mean, here's, here's, it was actually, today is, I think today is April 22nd. Yeah. Today is my, it's either April 20th or 22nd is my 31 years clean date. Uh, that was the date where I was sitting in jail and I was halfway through this book and I said, I'm done. And like some switch went off in my head and I'm just like, man, I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm done with this. Like, I'm going to change. I'm going to be the person I always wanted to be. And it was, it was this, it was either the 20th or 22nd. I got locked up September 8th of 89. I tried to escape out of the detention center on October 2nd. I was on lockup, I guess, for six months. I guess it was like till April 2nd. So I'd been off a of lockup a couple of weeks when I found that book. And, uh, and that was it. And even when I was on lockup, like I started to kind of change, like just thinking like I had hope, but I didn't have the belief in myself, but I had the hope that I could do it. And when I found that book, the book gave me the belief that I could do it. And, and it was that belief that changed everything. Well, congrats on that anniversary, man. That's a, that's a big thing. 30, 31, 32 years. That's awesome. Yep. So what, how, how, how difficult was it to, to kick that addiction? Was that something you just cold turkey you just started one day you, you're through with it or well, did you, it did you have setbacks it was cold turkey when uh because i got locked up <laughs> and uh, <laughs> i was more of a coke guy than a heroin guy i i probably had a habit but i was in such bad health that i just felt like shit anyway i think i when i when i went to court and the my attorney lays out the mug shots on the table and i looked at him and i didn't even recognize myself and i'm like well i'm not even in here and he pointed to one and he said, that's you. And I didn't even write. I mean, I look like a poster child from some country where people are starving to death. And uh, I mean, today I weigh 60 pounds more than I weighed that day. And I just, I, and so I was already feeling so bad. 
And, uh, but I was more of a Coke guy and Coke withdrawal lasts for, you know, like a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, the dope could last four or five days, but I felt like shit so bad anyway that I, I don't even know if I was, if I experienced anything other than just feeling like shit, uh, just cause I was in such poor health at the time, but that was it. I mean, I had gone through periods in the past before I got locked up where I'd never, I never, like I'd shoot dope for a week like every day. And then I wouldn't do it for a week. I'd do Coke every day for a week. And I never really felt anything, but it was probably again, because just the lifestyle I was living, I was just, I was always, you know, getting high on something. So, I, you know, it kind of takes the edge off of whatever withdrawal you're going through. If you're already, you know, I, you know, shooting Coke or whatever, it's like, you, you could be having dope withdrawal, but you do, you know, you shoot up, you know, uh, a 16th of an ounce of cocaine over a four or five hour period. You're not going to feel any of the dope withdrawal. And uh, the problem with Coke is you do a shot and then two minutes later, you want another one and then another and another. And, you know, I never stopped until I ran out of money or just after three days, I just was so tired. I couldn't stand up. So that that's it. Yeah. As far as like when I got locked up, that was just, it was cold Turkey, not by my choice, but that's the way it worked out. Yeah. And you mentioned something that I, that I thought was very interesting. I think, Many people have the same, they don't have the same experience that you had growing up, but I think many people, I think this is a universal problem. You mentioned that you were, you were looking for a solution to your problem outside of yourself, rather than, rather than inside. And I think most people, while they haven't, you know, they haven't grown up robbing or going to jail, most people are looking for solutions or happiness from outside sources rather than from within. And I think that's a common problem most people experience. So can you can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I would I would love to because that's that is a an issue that so many people in our society have, and uh, it is something that's within their control, but they just don't know it or they don't believe it. But so many of us blame where we're at in life on things that we have no control over, like you know who the president is or mm. who who that's a statue of or what, you know, who the school's named after. And the truth is like every morning we wake up and we can decide whether we want to do good or do nothing or do bad. And a lot of us, including myself for many years, choose to either do nothing or do bad because we think that the things that are controlling us are outside of ourselves. And so when we do that, we take the power to change away from ourselves because you you can't change the world, and so if you're blaming the world for your problems, your your problems are never going to be solved because you can't change the world. But if you change the way that you respond to those problems, then the sky's the limit. You can go as far as you want. And I and I didn't realize that at a young age. I mean, it, when you're young, it's easy to blame other people for all your problems. You know, I, yeah. I didn't get this because of this, for this reason, or this reason, or this reason. But we always have a choice in how we respond to that. And I think that it's just, it's so unfortunate that like we live in a country where we, yeah, we do have a lot of problems and, but people from all over the world are struggling to get here because they know once they're here, they can go as far as they want. And, uh, and that doesn't mean there aren't obstacles. Of course there are. Sometimes the obstacles are, you don't know anybody, you got no money and you don't even speak English, but that doesn't stop you, you know, and it's just, it's, it's an amazing thing to see. And I'm sure, you know, in, in your life, you've seen the same thing where people come here with nothing and they build something, a wonderful life. And then we see people that were born here that 30, 40, 50, 60 years later, they haven't done anything. And it's, you know, we had, we, it's the same, it's the same opportunities are available to all of us. And that doesn't mean that some of us don't have obstacles that slow us down, but that doesn't mean the obstacles have to stop us. And it's just, it's unfortunate that so many of us, including myself at one time, weren't able to see that. Yeah, definitely. So, and so let's talk about real estate. So how, how did you get into real estate? How did, how did that happen? Yeah, that was, uh, man, you know, when I was, even when I was a drug addict, like I had this dream that, man, if I could just buy like a two unit 
house and rent one apartment out and live in the other. Like I'll have my tenant pay my mortgage. And like, I, that's as far as I was ever capable of thinking as far as like my success goes. And again, like where I grew up at, like most of the kids in my neighborhood, if their dream was like, if you could just get a job driving a forklift at Pepsi, then you're set for life. Like that was our ceiling was like a blue collar job working in a warehouse. We couldn't even think beyond that. Hmm. And when I was younger, you know, I was trying to, you know, struggling, trying to get, you know, off the drugs like I did several times. And that was my dream. It was like, man, if I could just get a two unit and live in one and rent the other. And then when I finally got my stuff together, I managed to save up over a few years. I was able to, I had $130,000 in the bank and I'd invested a bunch up in the stock market. I made a bunch and then it started going in the wrong direction. So I took everything out. I lost everything that I had made, but I still had my initial investment back, which was about 130. And I just, I, I didn't want to just leave it sitting in the bank and making like a half a percent. And so I'm just, you know, I'm sitting there thinking like, well, where can I put this stuff? Like savings bonds back then people actually bought savings bonds and I'm looking at the interest rates and these, like, I didn't understand wealth or money at the time, but I'm looking at, like, I heard like of these CDs, these certificates of deposit, and, you know, you let the money have, you know, the bank have your money for five years and I'm doing the math and I'm like, man, this stuff is stupid. Like, <laughs> yeah. like, you know, 2%, 3% interest at the most, like, that's like dumb. Like, you don't, that's where like you put your money if you're 80 years old and you just want to preserve it. You know, you don't want to risk yeah. it. That's not where you're actually going to create any wealth. And, uh, and then I started thinking more about the real estate stuff. And what I did was I put together an Excel spreadsheet and my thoughts were, I want to buy some rental properties and I want to get a 30% cash on cash return. Meaning if I put 10,000, if I pull $10,000 out of my account to buy this property, I need to make $3,000 per year cash flow after all my expenses. And that included vacancies and repairs and all the other stuff. And it took a while to find the first one. And when I bought the first one, it was $75,000. It was three apartments. And according to my cash, uh, my cash flow on my spreadsheet, I was going to make $325 a month off the house. And it was like a, maybe $11,000 initial investment with yet to put 10% down and pay closing costs. And I remember I was sitting at the closing table and I had realized that I had just bought a car a couple, maybe three, four weeks earlier. And my payments, I think were 311 a month. And I'm sitting there at the closing table and I realized that my car payments 311 and I'm going to make 325 off this building. My tenants are buying my car. They're buying the building they live in and they're buying the car. Yeah. And that's where I thought, man, you know, like if I get like a couple more then they're paying the mortgage on my house. And if I get a couple more then they're paying my gas and electric bill and my insurance, and once I saw that, I, and I decided like, man, I want to, you know, I want to like get like 20 of these things and, you know, make it so that if I get hit by a car or can't work or something like that, that I have enough income coming in to pay all my expenses. My wife wasn't working for like five years. We had a son and then she went back to school and I was an independent contractor. Even though I was teaching in all these colleges, I was an independent contractor, which meant if I said something stupid, you know, or did something stupid or, you know, got hit by a car and I lose my job, there's no money coming in. And, but, you know, I had to feed a, a wife and a child and pay a mortgage and, you know, the gas and electric and all that stuff and food. So the, I saw the rentals as kind of like a safety net at first where I wanted to get enough so that if I lost my job, I'm just, you know, I, I think back then I needed like $2,500 a month to just pay my minimum expenses. And so that was my first goal was to get enough rentals to, to have that safety net. And then when I was like approaching that goal and back then I really didn't know any other landlords the first couple of years, I didn't know anybody. And I mean, this was like 2002, 2003, there's no Google, there's no Facebook, there's no meetup.com. There's, you know, like all of the tools and resources that I have available to me today, I couldn't even comprehend them. If you talked to me about Facebook in 2002, I wouldn't have even been able to comprehend what you were talking about. Yeah. And so I was kind of like alone, just figuring this stuff out. And eventually I thought, well, shit, if I keep doing this, like I can quit my damn job in a couple of years. Like I don't have to be stuck in this damn rat race anymore. Like I can actually get out of this crap. And that's what I started to do. I just started, you know, I just kept building my portfolio up, got educated, started meeting people 
uh, you know, I started finding out about these real estate investor association meetings and, and then eventually the meetups came around. I just started to learn and figure stuff out. And uh, eventually, you know, just a, a few years after I bought my first one, I was able to walk away from the IT thing and just do real estate full time. So, you know, to, that's where I'm at today. That's awesome, man. Awesome. And talk, what I really find amazing, talk to me about um, how you end up marrying your wife after you got out of jail. I mean, that's a, I think that's a, a movie in itself. Man, I tell you, I, uh, I am the luckiest guy in the world. She, in we, in high school, again, my self-esteem was messed up. You know, I wasn't a bad looking guy. I had a lot of girlfriends and all, but she, like I met her the first time I met her, I think I was in like the eighth or ninth grade. And I was just like, holy shit. Like, man, she is freaking hot. And uh, I thinking like, man, she wouldn't like, she would never get out with me. I'm just a bum. And then, Sometime around the 11th grade, somebody told me that she liked me. And I'm just like, you know, like, yeah, are you fucking with me? You think I'm stupid? No, she really <laughs> talking about it. So I ended up talking to her and found out that she did. And it was like, oh, my God, I, you know, like, I can't believe this shit. And we were together for four or five months. And I mean, we fell in love. We were we were very compatible, like as far as like emotionally and we're both, you know, very open as much as you're capable of being at that age, because even though you think you're the smartest person in the world at the age of 15 or 16, you don't really know shit. And uh, I'm still figuring stuff out about when I was 15 years old, but, but, you know, we, we think we know it all. We connected very well. And I knew at the time that uh, it's like, man, I'm like, I'm trying, I just gotten out of that hospital that I try to escape from and I was trying to keep my shit together, but I just like, I couldn't do it. I just could not sustain this normal, you know, life. I was just like faking it. And I just knew like, man, I, this is like, I, I can't sustain this and I cannot drag her down with me because I like, I'm out of control. Like I know I can't stop what I'm doing. And so I ended up breaking up with her and I made up an excuse. I told her that I heard she was like messing with some other guy. And I knew it wasn't true. But that was my excuse because I, at the time, I wasn't even capable of putting it into words. What I just told you, I just like I knew it, but I couldn't put it into words. Uh -huh. So we, I ended up breaking up with her, and and she was, you know, really, really upset. And I, I just felt like such, you know, like the loser. Like there I go, fucking over somebody else. You know, she's all upset. It's my fault. I'm just such a stupid, you know, bum. And then. I started this, like, I would see her now and then I would actually go to her work where she was working at because I still wanted to stay connected to her because I still loved her and I still cared about her. But I, I just, but I couldn't like have a relationship with her because I was out of control and I would go to see her. And then eventually, you know, like things got really bad for me, like with the Coke and the heroin and all that stuff. And uh, I didn't go see her anymore. And then when I first got locked up, I actually wrote her when I first got locked up and she wrote me back and said that uh, she saw a, a drawing on a wanted poster and she thought it looked like me. Well, it turns out it was me. And, uh, and I didn't write her anymore. You know, she told me, you know, she wrote me back and told me she's got a boyfriend, she's got an apartment, she graduated from college and, you know, all this. And I was very happy for her. And then before I got out, I wrote her again as I, as I mentioned, and she wrote me back and told me don't write her anymore. And then I wrote her back and then she wrote me back and, she ended up coming up and seeing me. Uh, I was in, made it down to minimum security. And she came up to see me a few times. And we kind of picked up where we left off before I broke up with her. Like it was just a natural connection. We felt very comfortable with one another. Uh, I was very open with my feelings about everything. I still am. I mean, I, like that's I've always been like that. And, and she's the same way. So we were able to be brutally honest with each other about every aspect of our life. And that is part of what allowed us to connect together in such a strong way. So when I got out of jail, uh, it was, you know, like I saw her the first night and the, how do I put this? I really put the brakes on. I mean, look, I'm a guy, man. I've been locked up for almost five years, you know, and here's a beautiful woman in front of me. I'm just like, 
but I'm thinking like, man, you know, like I respect her so much. Like I'm taking my time. I know what I wanted to do, but I'm just like, I, I just have too much respect for her. And so we, you know, we ended up seeing each other, you know, like every night. And then within a couple of weeks, I moved into her apartment. I was staying with my parents that didn't live that far from her. And then, uh, ended up moving with her and I had a job and all that stuff. My parents bought me a, it was like a 1983 Honda Civic or something. You know, I mean, it was falling apart, but it was, man, I mean, I was grateful to have it, you know, just as helped to get, you know, back and forth to work and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, we ended up getting together. We moved into each other within, you know, six months to a year, we were engaged. I think we got married and now she's the same way. So you can't just laugh at me. I think we got married in 96, June of 96, two years after I got out. She gets mixed up with it too. So that makes me feel a little bit better. But uh, yeah, and we've been married now for, I guess, 24, 25 years, something like that. And it's, I mean, it's not, it hasn't been perfect. Marriage is tough. And oh, yeah. yeah, it takes a lot of work and a lot of, you know, it's, you know, we've, we've had issues, but our marriage today is better than it was the day we got married. And we have one son, he's 22. He's about to graduate from school. He's already got a job lined up and he has been, he's the cherry on top of my life. You know, I just, I feel like where I'm at today is, is better than I could have ever possibly deserved. And then he's the cherry on top. Just he is, he's like, I was like, he's like, I would have been if I never did drugs. I mean, he's just a good kid, good in school. He's kind, he's generous, he's compassionate and he's smart and, uh, wouldn't change anything about him. And, you know, we put, you know, we wanted to have more kids, but I was terrified that I was going to have a child that turned out like me. And I didn't want to go through what I put my parents through or my grandparents. And so I just, you know, I talked to my wife about it. And I was like, look, I want to have one kid. I want to put him in a private school at the time. I thought that's all we could afford. You know, we could put one kid through private school too. We can't do it. And I wanted to just kind of go all in. Like I want to have one child and I want to just go all in on him and ensure that he has the best chance to survive and have an amazing life. And, you know, so that's going to include like going to every PTA meeting, every student parents, you know, student teacher conference, every, you know, athletic event he's in or school plays or any of that stuff. Like we want to be there for all that stuff and we want to check his homework and we want to like just all that stuff that it takes to be a rock star parent. And I, and I just thought with, if we have two kids, we're not going to be able to do that. And so we, she agreed reluctantly, she agreed and the plan worked, you know, he's, he's, he's the, you know, he's just the cherry on top and it, and again, kids are work too, you know, cause oh, yeah. we all, you know, when, you know, up till the age of 10 or 11, they love you and it's okay to see you and all that. And then when they're like 11 or 12 to like the age of 21, 22, they think you're like the dumbest person on the planet, just because you don't know what rapper they're listening to. They think you're stupid. Yeah. And, uh, and now he's like 21, 22. He just turned 22. And he's for the last year, we've noticed a big change in him where he's starting to like, I think he's starting to get it, <laughs> you know, that like life isn't that easy. And, uh, and there's a lot more to it than just playing video games and hanging out with your friends. And he, I don't think he doesn't think we're as stupid as he used to. He probably still thinks we're stupid, but not as stupid. <laughs> All right. Awesome. So Mark, why don't we do, let's go into the, um, our lightning round. Bring it on. I'm sitting down. I'm ready. All right. So what book or books have greatly influenced your life? Well, the first one would be uh, You Can If You Think You Can. And then as far as other ones go, there's I read a book when I was like 14 or 15. I think it was called A Walk Across America. The author was Peter Jenkins. And it was it was a, a book that it was a guy that walked across the country back in the seventies and it just told his life and experiences and all. And that had always appealed to me because it was outside of the mainstream, like the, the poor dad thing, like go to school, you know, get a good job with good benefits and stay there. You die. This was like the complete opposite end of the spectrum. So that had always appealed to me. Uh, Rich dad, poor dad by Robert Kiyosaki is another one. Uh, a better book by him is called cash flow quadrant which yeah, is, that yeah. yeah, that's kind of like part two. And I think that's a better book, but you really don't get it unless you read Rich Dad, Poor Dad first. Right. 
Uh, those two, I would say four hour work week was another good one. Most of the book's bullshit, but it gave me some thoughts on the way to get out of doing things I don't want to do to free up my time. And another one is called Rocket Fuel, which was also a, a really influential book on me because it, it, what it did was it brought clarity to me, to the kind of person that I am, which is a visionary. And most businesses, you need, you need a visionary and an integrator. The visionary comes up with the ideas and they do the networking and they're like the big picture guys. And the integrators are the ones that actually put it together. And I'm very good at the visionary part, but I'm not real good at the integration part. And, and reading that book helped me to realize that and look for integrators to help me with other business that ideas that I have. And it, that was actually uh, a very, a very important book as, as far as my business life goes. And also just helping me understand the way that I am. All right. Rocket fuel. I'll have to check that out. Okay. All right. And how has a failure or perceived failure actually allows you a greater success later? Boy, that's a tough question because I don't see, like people ask me about that in real estate. I say, I've never made a mistake. Uh, things have turned out the way that I didn't want them to turn out. But the way that I define it is any decisions that I make are based on the information that I have available at that time. So if I make a decision and it turns out bad, and then I find out later on that there were other things I didn't know, I, I can't really say it was a mistake if I didn't know, because if I had known, I might not have made that decision. Uh, now, I've had failures, a, a ton of them. Most of the time when things don't work out for me, it's like Thomas Edison said, you know, he found 9,000 ways to not make a light bulb. You know, it's like every, every failure that I have, I try to look, I'm Mr. Silver Lining. Like I look for the silver lining in, in everything. And I mean, so for me, if there's, if I experience any kind of failure with anything, I accept responsibility for it immediately. Uh, to me that that's the hardest part for a lot of people is to accept responsibility for their failures. But if you don't accept responsibility for it, you can't change it. Yeah. So, so I'm, I mean, I'm grateful for even the failures in my life because what they do is they teach me, a, you know, a better way to do something. So I, it's, I'm pretty, I'm just, man, I'm full of gratitude for all the opportunities that I've had. And, and even though they don't always work out right, it's just, at least I had the opportunity. So that's, right. I, I come from that direction. Yeah. I mean, that, uh, you're, you're exactly right. Nothing. I mean, failures are just another opportunity to learn. So yep. well, that's where you learn the most. I mean, right. it, when, when I learned this, when I was in the computer business, it's like, if everything's working right, you're not learning anything. Yeah. But when, you know, when the memory goes bad or something or the hard drive dies and you get to figure out or the power supply dies and you get to figure out what's wrong with the damn computer, that's where you learn the most is when things don't work out the way you want them to. Right. So, yeah, that, that, um, that saying, fail fast and fail quickly. I mean, that's, yep. that's something to that. All right. So if you could have a billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say? You can if you think you can. Okay, excellent. That's it. All right. And Mark, in the last five years or so, what new belief or behavior or habit has most improved your life? Wow. Oh, man. The last five years. Behavior or habit. You know, it'd probably be my uh, weight. It's not perfect, but I'm down 20 pounds from my highest weight. I saw a video of myself speaking like five years ago and, and at a real estate event. And I it was like when I saw myself, I was just so disgusted. That <laughs> I uh, just thought like, you know, hey, look at you, you little fat boy. <laughs> it's like, you look terrible. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm down about 20 pounds. I could lose another 15 and I, and I am working on it, but it's that, that's probably the thing that I've done the most is try to take better care of my health. Okay. When we finish, I want you to Google, um, 75 hard challenge. I won't try to explain it to you here, but if you haven't heard of it, just Google 75 hard challenge. Man, I'm going to have to write that down. I'm going to write it down right now. 75 hard challenge. Yeah. yeah. So it's kind of like, a, it's probably a lot more mental than it is about weight loss, but it's like six little steps you have to do like every day for 75 days. And it's okay. like an awesome, it's awesome. Okay. And the guy that does it, he has, he has a heart, he has a podcast too, but 
I will definitely, I will definitely look at that this afternoon. Yeah. Okay. Let's check it out. All right. And um, what advice would you give to a smart driven person about to start um, a real estate investment career? What advice would you give to them? Man, that is a, that is a really good question. And I'm going to, I always answer it. It's the same way. There's, there are two things that to me are like the most important part of this business. The first thing is the ethics above anything else. Do it. It's always the right thing to do the right thing. Always. Even if it costs you money, do the right thing. Uh, the second thing is the networking portion and they go hand in hand because the more people that know you, the more opportunities that can come your way. If you have a good reputation if you, if you are like doing bad business and a thousand people know you, that's a thousand people that know like, man, don't take that guy any deals. He's going to rip you off. So it's like always do the right thing and get to know as many people as you possibly can. You can do that through going to meetups, through real estate investor association meetings, through, uh, you know, sometimes in some cities like Baltimore, I used to sponsor a Friday lunch that went on every Friday for like five or six years until, you know, COVID kind of screwed that up. But uh, take it. And if you're new and you meet somebody else that's doing this, like ask them out to lunch, man. I mean, you might and buy their lunch. If you ever ask somebody out to lunch, you pay for the lunch. And what happens is you spend you might spend fifteen dollars on their lunch and you might learn something that's going to make you thousands of dollars in the future or, or create a relationship where you can help each other out for years to come. So it's not just a one way thing. Like I'm going to take them out to lunch. What can I get out of it? It's also what can, what value can I provide to them? Because you mm -hmm. want to build yeah. relationships where we can help each other. I mean, we all do better when we're all doing better. And so if I help you, that makes my world a better world. So why wouldn't I want to help you? And so my advice is, Maintain your reputation at all costs and network as much as you can in your business, whichever business you choose to be in. Those two things are, I think, the cornerstones. Awesome. That's good stuff. All right. And what, what are the bad recommendations you hear in your day to day for people new to investing or entrepreneurship? The bad recommendations. Um, you know, those come from a lot of bad recommendations usually come from people that aren't that experienced where like you might have a real estate agent that's been a real estate agent for 10 years, but they've never owned a rental property. You don't really know the business until you own one. So I would be careful who I'm taking advice from, like look at the source of the information. And also, and this is the street smart druggy part of me. It's like, you got to ask yourself, what do they want? You know, most of it, most people are good people. I don't, you know, I don't care what business you're in. Most people are decent people, but there are snakes that are out there and the snakes are going to want to tell you that, yeah, I'll show you how to do it. And then they're going to like, you know, sh give you the short end of the stick on the deals. Uh, a lot of times people will under, or the, how do I put this? They will overstate the resume. Like they're far more successful than what they actually are. So I can't give any specific bad advice, but I would say just be aware of the advice you're getting, like check the sources. Because like any business, there's a, you know, there's mostly good people, but there are some sharks. Yeah, definitely. All right. And Mark, in the last five years, what have you become better at saying no to? You know, that's a really, that's, I wish I could remember which book that was that I read this in but it was kind of a book on the art of saying no, because I was kind of a yes guy. Like I always want to help people. And I mean, you could call me up for anything and okay, yeah, I'll help you. I'll do this. I'll do that. And I began to realize that uh, I'm doing things that I don't really want to do, to, you know, and it's taking up a lot of my free time. And I just started saying no. And to sometimes they're stupid little things. And that freed me up so much just, just by learning to say no. And it doesn't mean that I don't want to help people, but it means I want to pick and choose when I do it. I don't want to feel obligated just because somebody asks me. Right. I don't want to feel like I have to do it because somebody asked me. So, so learning to say no was, it gave me a lot of peace of mind, really. And it's, and it's hard to do at first. If you're like me, if you like, if you like helping people and you want to help people, it's really hard to say no. And it, it, it was really difficult in the beginning, but as I began to do it, 
it became easier and easier. And as a result of that, my life became easier. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I had the same problem, but yeah, you have to kind of, yeah, if it's taking you away from your goals and it doesn't align with what you're trying to do, it's, it's, it's better to say no. And like you said, it's hard, but once you get something you have to work, it's a work in progress. You have to work on it, but yeah, you but definitely just can't say yes to everything. I remember when I, when I started saying no, uh, I used to be very open. Like if somebody called me up and said, Hey Mark, you know, I saw, you know, some podcast or listened to some podcast you did or saw you speak at some event. Can I take you out to lunch? And I'd be like, sure. And I was always saying yes. And then it's maybe four or five years ago, uh, you know, I met somebody for lunch at 12 o'clock and we're still there at like four 30 in the afternoon. And I'm thinking like, man, I just like my whole day, I spent four and a half hours sitting here, you know, like eating a freaking BLT. <laughs> and, uh, you know, like it just took like a half a day out of my life for like a $7 sandwich. And not that I didn't enjoy talking to the person, but like I got other stuff I'd rather do. Sometimes that other stuff might be, I just want to get home and take a damn nap, but it's my stuff. And, yeah. and so after that, I thought, man, I can't do this anymore. Like I, I can't just go out to lunch with anybody else. So then what I did was I put up a thing where it's like, man, I've got to lunch with you, but it's a hundred bucks an hour or it's a hundred dollars for lunch. You got to buy my lunch and it's a hundred bucks. And people are still signing up. And I was just like, oh, man. So I took that down because, you know, those were going over as well. And I'm just like, for me, my time is worth more than 30 or 40 bucks an hour. Even if I'm not doing anything, my free time is worth more than that. Right. And uh, I took that down. And now I'm just very reserved with what I do. I still got to lunch with people that I don't know every few weeks. But I, I'm a, a, lot of, a lot more protective with my time. Yeah, and rightly so. Well, time's our most valuable asset. You know, that's, we're not going to get any more of it. And, you know, I've, I've asked people that don't get that. I'm like, well, if I offer you a million dollars, do you want it? And the answer is, well, hell yeah. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll give it to you, but you're going to die tomorrow. Do you still want it? Hell no. <laughs> well, you know, that shows the point. Like your life is worth more than the money, right? And it's, I've done that with, I've, I realized that years ago. I, when my wife and I bought the house we live in, the it's we live in a townhouse we don't have a big yard it's close to a quarter of an acre and my parents gave us a lawnmower so i'm you know busting my ass you know working all week and then saturday morning i'm like out spending like two or three hours of cutting the grass and sweeping the sidewalk and raking the crap up and you know using a trimmer and i'm thinking to myself like this is bullshit man i worked all damn week <laughs> you know this is my free time and now i'm cutting the damn grass and I called up a friend that night. And I was like, hey, man, you want a lawnmower? <laughs> he said, yeah. And I ended up giving it to him a couple of days later. I took it up his house and said, here, because I'm like, I'm, I'm never going to cut my grass again. Like I, my free time is worth, you know, I think I hired somebody who was like 25 bucks, $28 to cut my grass. And like three hours on a Saturday morning, free time is worth $28 to me. And that's when I started oh, yeah, to realize sure. the, the value of my time. It was right about then because it's like, so now if, if there's something, part of the way that I created so much freedom in my life, in my business, is people say, Mark, how do you own 100 rental units and you work an hour or two a day? Like, how do you do that? And the way that I do it is, if it's something I don't want to do, I pay somebody else to do it. The only stuff that's left over is the stuff that I like for the most part. And, uh, and that's, you know, just realizing how valuable my time is, it just changed my life. Definitely. Good stuff. All right. And Mark, when you're, when you feel overwhelmed or unfocused, what, what do you do? Hmm. I guess it depends on, on what's going on in my life. Usually with my personality, like I'm kind of ADD and where I'm have a lot of different things going on at the same time. And that that's a struggle for me and it's a challenge the fortunate part is that I have the time to devote to the things that I care about. The problem is that the things that I care about change a lot. I'll get interested in one thing and then uh, two or months, you know, two months later say, ah, that's not interesting anymore. And I'll move to something else. Then I'll move to something else. Then I'll move to something else. So I'm sorry. Could you repeat that question? <laughs> yeah. So um, when you're feeling unfocused or See, overwhelmed, I'm not- I was unfocused and overwhelmed with the question. I forgot what the question was. Um, <laughs> how do I how do I put this? 
I allow, I allow now because I'm, I don't live in a structured life. Like I can kind of, I built my work life around my personal life. So I don't have to deal with that anymore. Like it's very rare that those things occur to me anymore when it does. Uh, I work best early in the morning. So if there's something that I have to do that I don't feel like doing, but I really need to focus on it. I like, I prefer, you know, get out of bed at five 30 in the morning and sit down and do it. And before the phone starts ringing and the emails start coming in and you're checking, you know, checking Facebook every 10 minutes and just all that other shit in life, man. I, it's just, for me, it's just easier to do the things I don't want to do first thing in the morning, get it off my plate. Okay. Very good. All right. And last question. I know I've been interrogating you for an oh, hour. Man, I don't mind. I do this all day. Right. So, yeah. So what is the, what is the one, what important truth do very few people agree with you on? Uh, well, I don't know if my beliefs are all truths or not. <laughs> so it's like, if most people don't agree with it, maybe I should rethink what I'm thinking. Uh, I think that it's, 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 some of the things are like the, the value of your time. I mean, like, I think that most people just kind of take it for granted. Mm, yeah, that's true. And, you know, what happened to me a few years ago was, you know, so we've all done this. You wake up at three o'clock in the morning and you can't fall back asleep. And, or maybe you wake up an hour before your alarm goes off and then you can't fall back asleep. And then you get pissed off because you can't fall back asleep and you got to get out of bed in an hour. And we've all go through that. And then one morning I woke up and couldn't fall back asleep and I'm starting to get pissed off. And then I realized, you know what? Man, at least you woke up, you know, because one day you're not. And it's like my wife's laying next to me. She's breathing. You know, my son's in the other room. I'm pretty sure he's okay. Our dog's downstairs. It's like if I, when I wake up in the morning now, I don't care if I wake up at two o'clock in the morning. I'm just glad I woke up because one day I'm not. And, uh, and, and that's how much, you know, that just changes my whole appreciation of every minute of every day. Even, even if I'm not having a good day you know, again, I'm always looking at the silver lining, like, man, I'm here, I'm breathing, you know, one day you're not going to be. So just, you know, don't let this shit get you down, man. It's just gotta, you know, just be grateful for what you have. And, uh, you know, because there are so many of us that are doing so much worse and it's like, man, I don't care how bad you're doing. You know, you think about, you know, some little kid that's on a burn unit somewhere where they 90% of their bodies burned up and their parents died. And it's like, Holy shit, my problems are nothing compared to what that person's going through. Like I should be ashamed of myself for even feeling bad. Yeah, definitely. Say. I mean, yeah, it's, it's people out there living on less than a dollar a day. So yeah. Yeah. Problems in comparison, so. Yep. So that's, so that's for me, what I tell people, you know, my thoughts are, and I don't think people disagree with this, but it's like, man, look, look at the bright side. Look at the silver lining. I don't care how bad it is. And, and it could be the worst thing in the world. You could be, you know, say that, you know, you're diagnosed with some terrible thing and, you know, it's your, it's going to be the end for you. And my thoughts are, okay, it's going to be the end, but I've had a really good life and I'm grateful that I had it. And I'm grateful for the wonderful people that I've been around. I'm sorry it's going to end, but I'm just like, I'm grateful that I've had that. And I think that, we would all be happier if we all had more of a feeling of gratitude, even when the shit's hitting the fan, if we just, if we just stop, take a deep breath and just, and thank, you know, whatever is out there for what we do have in our life. Absolutely. All right. Excellent. Excellent. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. I really enjoyed conversating with you. Now you're welcome, Donald, and I appreciate the opportunity. I really do. I hope that, you know, that your listeners, that some of what I said resonates with them and maybe, you know, I feel like my goal at this stage of my life is to inspire people to be their best and live their best life. And, th and that's really what I want to do. So I'm just hoping that, you know, during this time we spent together, that someone's going to listen to it and they're going to see things in a different way that's going to make their, improve their life. And if that happens, man, this was, this time was well worth it. I mean, for me, it's like, you know, if you can make a positive difference in somebody's life, like that's the best use of my time. And I'm sure it will, because I mean, you have a very inspirational story. I mean, I love what you've done. So yeah, thank you so much. And then before we hop off, if anybody wants to get in touch with you, collaborate with you or learn from you, what's the best way to get in touch with you? 
Yeah, probably my email, which is, it's just my name. It's Mark at MarkOwens.com. And I got a Facebook group, uh, Mark Owens, R-E-I. There's a page in a group. You'd want to join the group because that's where the interaction occurs. And I've done like a, you know, a bunch of videos on real estate, some self-improvement type stuff, but mostly uh, real estate stuff. So th those are probably the two best ways to find me. All right, excellent. I'll put both of those in the, in the bio for the podcast as well. All right, Mark, so thank you so much again. You have a great day and I'll be talking with you very soon. I appreciate all your time. Have a great day. You as well, Mark. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. There you have it, guys. Another episode of Dealmaker Diaries in the books. If you enjoy and or find value in what we're doing, please do leave us a nice review. It goes a long way in keeping the show moving in the right direction. For you investors, if you're looking for places to put your hard-earned capital to work, head on over to our website, g1cgrp.com, and sign up for our investor list to be informed of the different projects we're raising capital for that will provide you with the cash flow your investments so much deserves. Thank you.